Hi, this is Carol, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In our last episode, we talked about Facebook's partnership with Geo Platforms, which is owned by the richest family in Asia, the Ambani family. And this week, we move our gaze to South Korea's richest family and the largest chaebol in the country. Samsung. And joining us today is our guest, Jeffrey Kane, journalist and author of the book, Samsung Rising, the inside story of the South Korean giant that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech. So welcome to the show, Jeffrey, and congrats on publishing your book. Thank you, Carol. Thanks for having me. So Jeffrey, I know you have covered Asia for a long time as a journalist, both for the Wall Street Journal and for The Economist. And since it's your first time on the show on Analyze Asia, I'd love to learn more about how you started your career. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. So I, that is a long story that goes back pretty far. Um, I've actually been a foreign correspondent for about 12 years now. And I actually got my start after I graduated. I was a reporter writing mostly about technology. So I was writing about Apple, Google, early Facebook. This is back in the late 2000s, 2008, 2009. So this is a time back when I think that technology firms were much more feted and admired than they are now. We Right now we have the whole narrative of the, the evil technology firm and Jeff Bezos is, uh, you know, is coming under attack by the U.S. government for antitrust and things. But back then, when I was younger, there was much more optimism over the technology world and how technology would shape our lives and you know, shape our systems of government, our societies, it would open the world to different cultures. And I really wanted to tap into that story by writing about Google and Apple, obviously, but I had a background in Asian studies. I had studied uh, Mandarin Chinese for a long time. And then after that, I had gone on to study Korean at Yonsei University in Korea. And I really wanted to cover the story of some of these technology giants that were not American. There is a huge bias in the, the American technology world towards these Silicon Valley firms, but there are so many firms outside Silicon Valley that do incredible, amazing work that tend to get overlooked. And one of those companies when I was in South Korea was Samsung. I had been in Seoul for about two years at this point. I, I already knew Korea, the, the country somewhat well. I, I hadn't really gained expertise on it yet. But I was at the stage where I was writing about North Korea and its missile launches and then writing about South Korea and its K-pop and its new gadgets and smartphones. At this time, South Korea was starting to overtake Japan as one of the major cultural and technological powers of the world. And I thought that was an incredible story to cover. So one day I got a call from an editor at the Fast Company magazine, which is a tech magazine and business magazine in New York. And they were doing a big cover story on Samsung. They needed somebody in Korea who was familiar with Korea tour their headquarters. This was an invitation from their CEO and to write this big story about Samsung. Who, who is Samsung? This, this is back when Samsung versus Apple was just beginning, when Samsung had just put out its first Galaxy smartphone in this bid to take on Apple head to head and to eventually become the number two and then and then eventually the number one smartphone maker in the world. And so I, I thought it was an interesting story. So I took the offer, toured the campus for two days. We feasted on all this Korean food and, and I was hearing about all these projects that Samsung was working on. One of those, this was back in 2010 and they were already working on a foldable phone. Um, that's the phone that was just recently announced and released. It actually didn't do so well. They, they, there were some issues with the build and the, and the quality so and the, the price, so it didn't do well. But regardless, back then, 10 years ago, I was really intrigued 
that this company, Samsung, that doesn't seem to get much outside media coverage or much outside business analysis outside of South Korea, was starting to take on some of these big technology projects that were going to reshape how smartphones worked and how our technology worked over the next decade. So as I was touring this company, what piqued my interest wasn't just the technology itself, but I was taken aback and a little bit entertained, I would say, by the things that the top executives uh, would say about their leaders at Samsung. So I was coming from the world of Apple and Google and in Silicon Valley, there are all these cults of these companies and people would love Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. They saw them as as these deities. But uh, at Samsung, I, I was just kind of amused because the leaders there took this to a new level. When I was touring, the Samsung chairman, Lee Kuan Hee, was just recently pardoned by the president. He was found guilty of tax evasion in this big national trial and a corruption scandal. He was also accused of embezzlement and other crimes, never found guilty of those. He had left Samsung, resigned as the chairman of the Samsung group for the previous two years. And now he was just returning as the chairman after he was pardoned by the president. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking like, wow, so, you know, this would actually probably not happen in in Silicon Valley that uh, the the chairman, you know, is found guilty of some major crime and yet they can still, you know, run the company and it's, it's a publicly traded company, I think. Most shareholders would probably remove a chairman like that and just tell him you can't be here anymore. But then, uh, you know, as Chairman Lee is returning to Samsung, I would be interviewing the top executives and uh, they would describe him as this kind of god or deity, this, this person who, you know, despite his criminal convictions, he laid down the vision for Samsung and he built it into this massive company that we know. And they described his work literally, they said it's a miracle. They used these words that he wanted to create a miracle. He wanted to change our society. He wanted to make Korea great. He wanted to build the nation and we see him as you know, our leader. You know, this is the kind of thing that it just, I, I mean, I was just so interested. I was so intrigued by this corporate culture at Samsung of this kind of this borderline leader worship and how, you know, the leaders either go to jail or be convicted of something, but they're still the leader and they're still being praised to the skies. So I decided that this is a company that it needs to be written about more in depth in English because there was a lot of Korean coverage and Korean books being written at the time. But as I was going through the English language coverage, there simply wasn't much out there. I mean, no, Samsung was a black box and nobody really seemed to know the story of this company and how it got so big and profitable. I mean, it was it was certainly more profitable than at the time than Amazon and Facebook and, you know, these major software companies back in America. Also more profitable at the time than um, almost every Chinese company such as Huawei and Xiaomi. I mean, it was one of the most profitable technology companies in the world and yet nobody knew the story. So I set out to write this book during my time as a correspondent in Seoul. It took about five actual years of research and writing to get it out. And that's not including the decade that I actually spent covering Korea. I mean, there was a lot of coverage I was doing even before the actual book research that contributed to the book itself. So interviewing Korean politicians and interviewing, you know, Korean regulators and analysts and people who, you know, they, they were involved in this, this Samsung issue in Korea. And I say the Samsung issue because Samsung is an extremely divisive company in Korea. There, there's a whole movement of people who love Samsung and support it and they see it as a symbol of national pride. And then there's an entire movement of other people who think that Samsung is essentially an aristocracy, it's royalty. It emerged on the back of all kinds of corruption scandals and alleged 
bribery and government relationships and, and it should be either dismantled or it should have some kind of antitrust action against it. So, you know, when I was writing this book, I, I started to realize really quickly that I wasn't just writing a book about a company and about technology, but I was writing a book about South Korea itself through this one company. Uh, I, I don't think that there are many places out there where you can actually write a book about a company and then you're also writing about the country. It's just, you know, it, it's just uh, incredible that South Korea has this system. So that's my story. And uh, that's where I was coming from when I wrote this, I wanted to contribute, you know, to English readers uh, a better understanding of what this company is and how they got to where they are. And I thought that there were some lessons they could learn along the way about what to do and what not to do if you're running some kind of vertically integrated conglomerate anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And before we really get into the content of your book, what are some of the lessons that you can share from your career, from your time covering, you know, South Korea, North Korea? I believe you also covered China and Cambodia at one point as well in, in your career. Yes, yes, I did. And I've also covered the Middle East, Turkey, UK. I was in London for a while. So actually, right now, I'm based in Turkey. I'm, I'm not in Turkey right now because of COVID. I got stuck in Chicago while I was traveling here. And so I've just been sitting here for the past you know, a couple months. But I think that you know, looking back on my own business journalism career, I think that one of the biggest lessons I've learned is the importance of narrative and storytelling. I think that a lot of business and technology writers, sometimes they fall into this trap where they might be covering a company and they start to look look more at the company numbers and financial reports. And they base a lot of what they write by just looking at what's the profit this quarter? Why, why is this company doing well this year? Um, this is mostly short-term journalism that doesn't really resonate with a lot of people. And it doesn't really teach us lessons that we're looking for. What, so, you know, how did Huawei get so big? And what led to these trade wars that are going on right now? It, it doesn't really have much to do with the financial cheats itself. It, it actually has to do with a bigger story about the emergence of China in the world. And so finding that context and finding that bigger picture idea, like what is the big idea here? I think that that is the most important thing to becoming some kind of either a successful author or a writer or, uh, you know, if you're doing a blog. In the world we live in now, people are awash in information. And, you know, if I wanted to find out what X company is doing this year, I can just go on Google and, and look at their website and look at their corporate reports. But if I really want to get insight into what's really happening, I mean, what is the true meaning behind the events going on in the world, I go buy a, a book or pay for high quality content. I think that's really the business model that I think a lot of writers have realized works now. And that the days of doing short term, you know, writing or short, short term analysis are pretty much finished. I don't think many people are, are willing to actually pay for that. And so the business model is really pivoting to high quality content. You know what, that's something that I uh, agree with 100%. You know, when you see reports of, of all these numbers, these numbers change all the time. Like you said, these are very short term type of reporting. But to be able to, you know, understand the history, the culture, and the, the human aspect of these companies and uh, their stories, I think that that is the most valuable. That is where the value lies, where, you know, journalists can teach the world. What are some of the key lessons that you can share with maybe the younger audience? who are, you know, aspiring to be a, a better journalist or potentially uh, come out with a book on their own? I would say that, you know, so the, the, the book publishing industry, it's 
not the same as the business journalism industry or the you know business report, the financial report, the analysis industry. I think that my biggest advice would actually not so much like when you're starting to write a book, look at the market and look at the business side of how the market works. I, I actually meet a lot of young writers who they have a great idea for a book and it sounds like, yeah, the, I mean, they could write the book. But it's not going to find a big publisher because it doesn't really have the significance that people are looking for. You know, one of the things after writing about Samsung, I've gotten emails from quite a few young reporters who, you know, they're interested in writing a book about a company. And the question you have to be asking is if you're going to write about an organization itself, what is the bigger story here? So why would I want to learn about, you know, like this, uh, say there's a company and, you know, it, it could be in Singapore, it could be uh, Tamasek, or it could be something in Chicago, it could be Boeing. What is the actual significance behind that company and its rise and what it stands, stands for? And, you know, in the case of, say, Boeing, you could tell a story, a bigger story about the airline industry or, you know, the, the aircraft industry and how that actually played a major role in, in building a lot of economies in the world. A really good example of that actually is there, there's a really good book about the Chinese airline industry that was written by James Fellows. He was a longtime correspondent at The Atlantic, and he's something of a China expert. And he was able to tell a story about China's airline industry, but then also wrapped it up in the story of a society and how a society and a government was trying to actually build the country itself. I mean, that's kind of similar to Samsung, building the nation, building South Korea. But there are lots of different angles that you could use to approach this. But my suggestion is to think about that angle so that this transcends journalism. You're not writing journalism when you're writing a book. You're writing a story. You know, you're writing, it's, it's closer to creative nonfiction or even fiction. I'm not saying make up, you know, don't make up facts, don't write fiction. But the thought process I find is more tuned to fiction writing because you have to think about who your characters are and what your plot is and why readers would be interested in this. Um, I could recommend one more book that I really enjoyed recently. It's uh, called The Scientist and the Spy. It's by Amara uh, Histendahl. And she is a, cor a longtime correspondent for China based in Shanghai at, at Science Magazine. And this is a really good example of how to write a book, especially as a foreign correspondent, because she manages to take the subject of corn seeds. So corn seeds, you know, I was looking at this and I thought, come on, like corn seeds, that's not a very, uh, you know, significant topic. It's not that interesting. But she takes it and she wraps up this story into these trade wars going on between China and the U.S. and tech wars. And she shows how, you know, there was an operation on, on one side to lift the corn seed technology from Iowa, from these companies like Monsanto, and then transfer the IP over to the, these Chinese companies that wanted the same thing because they, they could use corn seed technology to uh, you know, feed cattle, and it was useful in, in improving yields and farms and things like that, like really important for the economy. But then on the flip side, she also told the other story about how once the American, the FBI got involved in this espionage case, this industrial espionage case, it was almost like, I mean, there's this whole history in the US of the, you know, the profiling of, of you know, either Chinese Americans or ethnic Chinese people who migrate to the country. And, you know, it goes back to the Cold War. And, you know, there were there was even one nuclear scientist who helped the U.S. develop nuclear weapons. And he was outed as, you know, supposedly some communist. He, he wasn't actually a communist, but then he left. He just fled America and went back to China. And America lost a great scientist in the process. So she's warning against that history, you know, of not succumbing to, you know, the, the, you know, this hysteria that pops up in American society sometimes that people need to look at the cold, hard facts and not get swept up in their feelings about 
what's happening in the world and who's the threat and who's the enemy. You could get in a lot of trouble with that. These sounds like very important lessons, especially for today, for you know how the situation has escalated between uh, China and the U.S. Sounds like a very fascinating book. But now let's talk about your book, uh, Samsung Rising. Now we know that Samsung is, of course, a fascinating company, like you alluded to earlier. We know that it's about what eighty years old now, and it's arguably the most powerful company in South Korea. And it's interesting how you mentioned earlier that when you're writing about this book, it was it was like writing about South Korea. And people have called South Korea the Republic of Samsung, so that just goes to show the extent of its influence on the South Korean economy, politics, etc. And I know you kind of explained a little bit earlier, but I still want to ask you: What is the inspiration behind writing this book? I think the inspiration was really going beyond my love of Korean culture and my love of Korean literature itself. I, it's actually just the need to tell a story. I, the inspiration was that I really did feel that you know for a long time. I was a journalist, and I was I was writing pure journalism for news outlets. But I wanted to see, you know, what would it take to build journalism into something more interesting and more significant to to readers who actually go to the local bookstore and buy books. I mean, I think that's a totally different audience. So for me, it was much as an exercise in the craft of writing as it was, you know, a work of reporting of doing my basically building on my reporting. The other inspiration I would say was I don't say this lightly, but I actually visited North Korea. A few times, I, I saw a lot of similarities between the North Korean and South Korean cultures, and you know, learning to read Korean and speak Korean. I, I actually would, you know, listen to people telling jokes and things, and I just I found it really interesting that North Koreans they tell the same jokes as South Koreans. It's the same humor, and you know, it, it's almost like they they tell the same stories to me. And I, I'm reading some Korean literature, and and a lot of these books are once you go beyond the propaganda in North Korea, when you go back historically to say Japanese colonialism, I mean, a lot of the literature is really similar. Because Korea was one colony and you know one nation at one point. And I think that one of the inspirations was that I, I wanted to show that I think that in any country, when you draw an artificial border, I think the inspiration was that in any country, when you draw an artificial border, that doesn't mean automatically that people are simply separated. That you know one side is is like one side is democratic, one side is. Dictatorial and communist. When you draw a border, people still have family ties. They still have cultural ties. They still, you know, they play the same sports. They remember the times that they spent with their friends up in the north or in the east or whatever. If you're talking about Germany, you know, I think that's a very powerful cultural and social force. When you go beyond political borders and look at a society itself, and how does a society organize itself, and how does it approach certain topics and approach problems, and how how do people solve problems? I, I actually found that in my travels between North and South, that, that that people on both sides were much more similar than I think people give them credit for, especially if you're not learning the language and you're you know looking from the outside, just looking purely at the missile launches and then looking at. The technology in the South and the K-pop, it looks so different, but underneath there is a stream of underlying similarities that I think would last for a very long time, maybe for generations before people actually start to do things differently and starts to change. And this actually explains, in my view, you know, how a company like Samsung or any cable group could actually exist. I mean, they they have family dynasties that are not dissimilar to North Korea. There's a long Korean tradition of family rule that goes back about 800 years. So, you know, I think that what separates Korea from a lot of places is that there was uninterrupted dynastic rule by a single dynasty. For about 600 years, and this is the E dynasty. And Korea, when this dynasty began, 
was still, it was essentially the same Korea when the dynasty fell and when uh, the Japanese colonial period began. It really was a feudal society. And if you go around the world and look at the history of dynasties, I've often found that you don't see that pattern in a lot of places. Usually there is a new, a new dynasty that comes in maybe every three or four generations. There's a power shift or there's a new tribe. You know, in the case of China, the Manchus invaded and that started the Qing dynasty. And you know, if you look at Europe, say Southern Europe, it's, it's just a constant history of warfare and new dynasties toppling each other and, uh, you know, invading the old castles and taking things over. You know, the Ottomans showed up. I mean, I could go on and on. I don't want to bore listeners. But that kind of history explains how these dynastic table firms, I think, could exist and could become so powerful with these families that just seem unassailable. I mean, they have so much influence in Korean society and it's almost like they can't be challenged. I mean, they can't be removed from their positions. It's, it's very rare to see a company, a large company in Korea that's not family run. So who are the intended audience uh, of your book? Is it simply business executives? Or can someone who just has an interest, say, in Korean culture or just K-pop would be uh, would benefit from reading your book as well? Um, actually, so I, I do have two audiences. And yes, the business executives, the industrialists, anybody who's working, uh, say, in a technology or manufacturing related field, I thought that they would take some joy in this because I tried to write it like a novel almost. Like I tried to write it in a way that makes it fun, that whips it along and there's a thriller aspect. There are some, you know, high level presidential corruption scandals and an impeachment and mass protests. But then on the other side, you know, there there is a whole cottage industry now, especially with the rise of Korea of people who just are really interested in Korean culture. I mean, there there's BTS out there. There's people who use these Korean devices. There, It's just, you know, and, and I can see them because I go on Twitter a lot and I'm, sometimes I'm just following the, the hashtags. And, you know, even when I first came to Korea, I, I never anticipated that a group like BTS would just spread so massively, would get so big. I always assumed that K-pop would, you know, stay confined to, you know, some of these South American and Middle Eastern countries that took an interest that uh, didn't really have a lot of their own content and they you know they took an interest in imported content but it's just korea has taken off and it's just it's really incredible seeing what's been happening recently with covid the response i mean korea was not always that good at responding to disasters and and pandemics the mayor's was a good example where the government simply failed to stop the spread in in a way that was reasonable and you know it's just it's really been in the last five years which is not that long that there's just there's been this renaissance in Korean film with Parasite at the Oscars and, and Korean pop, Korean government and the pandemic response. I think that it's really become a, a model for, that a lot of the world wants to follow. If you wanted to, you know, summarize a few key takeaways of the book so that our listeners uh, would know, hey, this might be something that I really would want to grab and read. Uh, what would you tell them? So I would tell them that this is the story of a feudal dynasty that's running a modern technology giant. What happens if you were to take Facebook or take Apple or take even any company, it could be Nokia or McDonald's or something, and put a dynasty in the position of leadership? What would that company look like? I think that that is the most interesting thing about Samsung. It really grabbed me. It made it made me want to write this story. How does a dynasty run a company and how does a, a dynasty make that company successful? And the answer is that this is the, the upside of family control is that they can plan for the long term, whereas in this You could say this Anglo-Dutch, I say Anglo-Dutch because that's where it started originally, the shareholder capitalism model where everybody chips in a little bit and gets a share. 
they have a lot of trouble planning for the long term these days because they are responsible to shareholders and they're going to make decisions that might say damage a society. But, you know, the shareholders get off free. And, you know, there, there are a lot of risks we've seen recently with the COVID, with the economy. For example, American Airlines, they were involved in these share buybacks for a long time, looking out for shareholders and not investing in the company and its infrastructure and its people. And now they, since they relied so much on their stock to buoy the business, now they're all in a lot of trouble. And, you know, even the big investor uh, out in Nebraska, he, you know, he sold his airline stocks and just said, like, I, I got to get out of this business because it's not a good business. This usually does not happen at Korean table groups because the family, you know, despite some of the scandals that they've been involved in, they look out for long-term interests of the company and they make major and often very risky investments, say in semiconductors or oil and petroleum or, you know, heavy industries or displays very, very long in advance, and they're able to fund it, they have the capital, you know, they're able to to ride out the waves of losses that, that always come with these kinds of investments, they're not going to pull out early. And they can make this investment 10 years in advance, and they'll come out profitable, and they'll come out, you know, the victor. That's why Samsung and these Korean firms are so successful and so influential. And it, it's not a story that many people can mimic because not everyone, you know, the average business owner doesn't have all that capital sitting around to make a big investment in semiconductors. But it is something to think about when you're running a company, why the long term matters and why you shouldn't just listen to shareholders and focus on your stock. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of Samsung. So I know that, you know, it was funded in 1938. So it's about 80 years old now. And um, initially, it was just a small trading company, right? They dealt uh, tried fish, groceries, noodles, which is so different from the modern technology giant uh, we know it as today. Can you talk a little bit about um, the transformation over the years um, for, for Samsung? Yes, yes. And that's exactly what it was. It started out as a dried fish shop and this dried fish was imported from Hong Kong at the time. And essentially it was a shop that was selling vegetables to Koreans and Japanese colonial residents who during this colonial period, this was just as Japan was starting to expand across Asia with the, the co-prosperity sphere in the early days of World War II. Uh, you know, it got down all the way to Burma eventually. You know, there were clashes at the Indian border, but I think that the Japanese military stopped there. Uh, Lee Pyeongchul was somebody who set out, he realized that at the time Koreans were stereotyped and seen as kind of backwards and they couldn't really cooperate with each other. Very A very divided people, you know, who didn't really have much of a future. It was a poor peninsula and it was a peninsula that really didn't have many long-term prospects. And he actually wanted to change the image of Koreans and help build the nation at the time of colony through these kinds of long-term investments that I was talking about. So he set up Samsung. He, he expanded very quickly using a lot of political connections with the Japanese government. He expanded into a beer brewery, and that was a more profitable model than a grocery store because alcohol is always more profitable because people it's a it's called an inelastic good in economics so people they buy more of it because they you know they can drink if they're <laughs> if they have some problem they can drink more and more <laughs> it's one of the ironies of economics uh, but then he expanded over time so the the Japanese empire collapsed um, in 1945 and the allied occupation showed up in Korea to enforce the surrender of the emperor he had given up Korea as a colony and this was when Korea was divided into the pro-Soviet sector, which was the North, and then the pro-American sector, which was the South. This eventually led to the Korean War, which was when North Korea invaded South Korea. Un 
it looked like it was going to be successful for a while, but there was a United Nations intervention and the North Korean forces were pushed back to the 38th parallel, which is the border that we have today between the two Koreas. And during this time, Lee Byung-chol, the founder, he is uh, in hiding down in Busan, which was the last stronghold of South Korea that the North Korean forces had not seized yet. And he, st- he really started developing his philosophy of business during this time because, you know, the Korean War was, it was devastating. It was one of the worst wars that's much forgotten around the world, but uh, one of the worst civil wars in the 20th century in which, you know, something like 70% of the North Korean landscape was decimated by air attacks. And about 3 million Koreans died out of a very small population. I mean, I think back then it might have been 20, 20 million or less. So, I mean, just imagine... So, you know, something like one in five you know, of the people you know would just would just perish. I mean, it was really devastating. And he realized through all the things that he'd been through, the importance of human resources and you know the, the development of talent and people. People were in very short supply, and you really needed to find good people to help run a business and entrust them with these long-term tasks without you know meddling in them. That's really the Samsung model. So. He set up this model in which the human resources department is the centerpiece of the Samsung empire, the emerging empire, you could say. It's the centerpiece because it goes around and it ensures that everybody is essentially a lifelong generalist. He would hire people for life, very common back then. He also wanted to be sure that Samsung was a company that could also withstand those long-term, those social and economic forces that could take down a company at any moment. You know, one of the things he did was that he he diversified his group. He went into all kinds of different fields, which is common in a lot of these East Asian conglomerates. He invested in agriculture and paper milling and fertilizer, you know, light industries, clothing, wigs, you know, retail outlets. He pretty much did a little bit of everything. And by the end of the 1950s, he was the richest man in South Korea. But he was also disliked by a lot of Koreans. He was viewed as a symbol of corruption. Korea at the time was a lawless place. It was it was sort of like a Wild West, you know, with cowboys and, and you know, and violence and and all that sort of thing, a very violent government. And so in the 1960s, there was a coup d'etat by Park Chung-hee. He seized the government. He was a general, and he was actually, uh, he, he developed his worldview in his service to the Japanese military. He served in what today is northeastern China, and he actually wanted to build what was basically a Japanese economic model in Korea in which these chable groups would serve the national interests. They would be under state, almost state command. Uh, they would have to do what the government says, or else the chable leaders would have their businesses crippled. They would lose their licenses and the leaders would go to jail, usually by the government, you know, pulling up some dirt it had on the company and, and saying, oh, you're, you, you've been involved in white collar crimes. So you're going to jail now. So he was able to get a lot of these cable groups in line. And this is what really created the Korean economic miracle that people talk about today. It was this ability, this state command that was criticized by a lot of organizations such as the World Bank and the IMF. And, you know, a lot of the, the Western, the European powers thought that it didn't really have much of a future because it went against the free market model that they thought was so great. But I think that the Korean case shows, as many people have demonstrated, that when a nation is developing, uh, state control is actually an asset. It brings down the costs of doing business for a lot of people. uh, There's the choosing of national champions. I mean, bad businesses will fail and good businesses are protected by the government so they won't have to compete with foreign companies that are just so much more advanced. There's just no way they can compete. So they have time to build up their capabilities. 
And it was in the 1980s that Samsung and other companies, they actually reached that point where they were finally ready to compete with the rest of the world. And this is when they were able to make advanced semiconductors at the time, DRAM technology. These would be the early chips and displays that were used in, say, the Macintosh, the Apple computers, uh, the Sony Walkmans, and then later the, the PlayStation. So you know, the, Korea really rose as a component supplier, um, supplying these Japanese and American firms and German firms too. I think that this is one of the interesting, I guess, business lessons that we can draw from Samsung. It's that you don't have to be the consumer model. You know, you don't have to be the one making the actual device that people hold in their hands. The, the best position to be in often is actually to be the behind the scenes component maker. If you can make the chips and make the best chips, you know, supply it to a company like Apple, which despite being a rival, depends on Samsung even today, you can essentially ride off their success. I, I was reading one estimate that for every iPhone that's sold, Samsung makes about $115. So they're essentially taking a 10% cut of every iPhone, you know, just going to another company. That's incredibly profitable. And I think that that just, you know, for a long time, Samsung was way more profitable than Sony and Facebook and all these companies. Like, I think that they found this model where they could supply hardware, they could ride off the success of other companies. You know, fast forwarding a little bit, the model eventually became that they would make the components and then they would use that experience and use the lessons they could learn to compete directly with the companies they were supplying. So it's almost like they had a stranglehold on the market. And it's like, if you're Apple and you need a good display, you have to put a call to Samsung, but you also know that Samsung is watching you and they're looking for a way to compete with you and make a better phone. So, uh, you know, I think that they're going to be studying what you're doing and, and reacting and responding to each move. That is a, a, a very smart business strategy. It has, its, it has its downsides, but being in a position where everyone needs you, but then everyone has to compete with you, it's a position that essentially makes your company this fortress. It can't be taken down. There, there's so much that you can do with that. And there's so much that I think that we learn from these Apple versus Samsung wars about, you know, how to, you know, attack and how to defend and how to, you know, what to do and what not to do. And that's really the gist of the, the history of this book, the history side and how Samsung, Samsung got to where it is. And you mentioned uh, this word and I used it too. Can you explain to our listeners what a chebel is and what that term in Korean uh, means in English? Uh, yes. So Chable, I would translate it roughly as wealth clan. There are a lot of translations that you can use. And a Chable, this is a, a word that Koreans started using back when the Republic was first founded. So back in the 1950s. And it referred to these family run, sprawling, uh, vertically integrated conglomerates such as Samsung and Hyundai and LG and uh, SK. These are the big four names that, that a lot of people know, but there are hundreds and hundreds of table groups of many sizes. The table usually refer to, you could say the top shelf or the biggest firm, but you can use the word to describe almost any family owned business that has some kind of government backing or that makes a sprawling set of product lines and components. So what I found interesting is that the word table, it, it actually has the same translation as Zaibatsu, which was the Japanese equivalent to this model before the war. So during the colonial period, back when Japan, in, you know, with the Meiji Restoration, Japan became a major industrial power um, in Asia and eventually across the world. And Japan used a very similar model uh, in which these family-run conglomerates would industrialize and uh, build the nation. And interestingly, they were also 
not very well liked by a lot of uh, Japanese citizens at the time. They were seen as a bit reckless, and you know they drove fancy cars and lived in fancy mansions, and they and they were almost seen as hurting the national interest. So the Japanese government would often try to get them into line and you know launch attacks on them and arrest their leaders and and try to get them back into the mode of of self-sacrifice of developing the nation. That's why, you know, the, the Zaibatsu was one of the reasons why, despite I do know that there were a lot of heinous uh, war crimes committed by the Japanese government at the time, but, you know, despite that, you have to look at the Zaibatsu, and I think that, you know, it, it, it is remarkable that they were able to get that far when Japan, you know, about 80 years before all this happened, just simply, it was the same situation. It was seen as a bit, didn't have many prospects in the future, seen as kind of backwards, um, you know, it was under attack by American naval forces who wanted to open up Japan and force it into these really unfair trading deals. And I think that Japan learned that, you know, one of the ways to stand strong and to withstand these kinds of colonial attacks was to essentially become like the people who are trying to colonize you. You have to become industrial and, and modern and, you know, women have to get the right to vote and you need to have somewhat democratic businesses that can, you know, they're, they're somehow responsible to the country and they can build the country and they can export the country's way you know, out of poverty, and, and then with, and then they can build up into this major power that a lot of people really look to as you know something that has a lot of influence on the world. So the Samsung table or the Samsung wealth clan has gone through about three generations now. Uh, you talked a bit about the founder who is uh, Lee Byung-chul or BC Lee for short. And then there is Lee Kun-hee and now uh, Jay Lee. Can you talk a little bit about how um, they're different and what the different generations and how they have contributed to the growth of uh, Samsung throughout the generations? Sure. So BC Lee was the founder and he lived from 1910, which was the year that Japan colonized Korea, to 1987. So he basically witnessed the entire rise, the Korean economic miracle, and died in the year that Korea had reformed and started to become a democracy. Um, There were protests that year. So he's an interesting figure because I think that his life really follows the contours of Korea itself. And you could really write a story of his life and and then just tell the story of Korea too. He was somebody who embraced a business model of finding fire sale acquisitions. He would go around and if there was a company that that had a lot of distressed debt or was just having trouble, he would buy it at a super cheap price and then try to rebuild it. And he would use the profits from other Samsung affiliates that he had already built and re-divert those profits to building a suffering company. And by embracing this model, he was able to expand enormously. I mean, he even had his own university, which is the oldest university in Korea. He bought it and he you know, had a major newspaper, the Jumong. So it's a familiar story about the tycoon who expands the business and becomes extremely powerful. There's a good film, classic film called Citizen Kane that follows this same model. And I, I thought that it was interesting because it kind of followed his life too when I was writing about it. He lives through, you know, he's he's cautious. He doesn't buy anything without looking at it carefully. He's big into research and he also believes in the importance of, of these human resources or just employees who can be talented. And he, he actually sat in on 100,000 interviews during his entire tenure until about 1980. He personally, he would just walk around all day. And this is what Samsung executives told me he would go into employee interviews of new recruits and just sit there in the back and they would be interviewing them as a group, group interviews. And he would actually read their faces. He believed in physiognomy and he would hire you know, professional face readers to try to figure out what their characteristics were like. It's not something you see very often today. But he was able to build what they called the Samsung military at the time. And it's this army 
of Samsung civil servants almost. I mean, more structured more like a government than a business who are super efficient and who can pass along acquisitions and, and make big picture decisions and execute things really quickly. The problem though was that Samsung was actually under attack by the government quite a bit and Samsung's future was up in the air. It wasn't even clear if Samsung would survive beyond his death. So he and his son, who was his heir, Ikun Hee, they made this decision to make the, these big investments in DRAM semiconductors, which were um, extremely risky and cost a lot of capital and could easily fail and destroy the business altogether. But it was this ability to, you know, it, it was his son's ability, Ikun Hee, to institute this idea of perpetual crisis to go around the company and to tell people that there's a crisis and we need to work harder and faster and longer, that he was really successful in firing up his employees and making them proud to be what were called Samsung men at the time. And they were mostly men. There weren't that many women working for Samsung back in the day. So his father dies and the Samsung chairman, Ikon Hee, he is um, something, he's a little bit different. So he's kind of a recluse. He doesn't really enjoy meeting executives that much. I mean, he he's more somebody who would... Uh, say take phone calls he wouldn't really go to a big speech quite yet and, and deliver these you know these incredible words but uh, eventually he realizes that he has to come out and he has to make his mark on the company um, because he actually thinks that the samsung executives are becoming too complacent with their success so this is in the early 1990s when korea is opening up to the world the markets are starting to you know relax a bit and there's a lot more foreign competition coming in from ibm and sony and major multinational firms meanwhile samsung is actually it's very it's the number one company in korea but that doesn't mean that it can defend against all these major companies around the world so he realizes that he needs to instigate a sense of renewal and rejuvenation among his executives. So he called them to a conference in Frankfurt in Germany. This was because the products they were, they were releasing were just not that good quality. I mean, there were microwaves that, you know, like, like you would close the door handle at the time and plastic mold would scratch against the other side of the door. And, you know, instead of actually fixing the assembly line problems, the engineers at Samsung would just take a look at the end product and just shave off, you know, the, the problematic plastic with a knife. I mean, it's, ex it's extremely sloppy manufacturing and it led to all sorts of defects and returns. And it was just, he called this a cancer in Samsung because it was eating up so much of the revenues. I mean, just it, like, like the, the time spent, the time and money spent correcting flaws was money that could be put towards so many other processes in the business that would help it grow. So, at Frankfurt, he harangued his executives in 1993 uh, for three days of speeches. This was in June. These are eight to 10 hours a day. He would just walk in and he opened up this inner fury and just spoke and spoke and spoke and you know told his executives that they need to change everything except their wife and children that they need to, you know, just stop, stop thinking like you're a manufacturer and start thinking like you are a major multinational company that can also do design and software and make good phones. And you can, you know, go into the, the, the more higher premium level businesses that are much more profitable. He realized that you had to go from quantity to quality to be able to emerge as a respected global firm. So it took a while. This did not catch on overnight. But over time, Samsung set its benchmarks. And the first one was the old national rival, which is Japan, and especially Sony. 
And they were able to overtake Sony through a combination of very clever marketing and also through the import of a lot of foreign executives who knew marketing. They knew how to do marketing. It it wasn't a Samsung talent. They brought in a lot of Korean Americans who were trained in these fields. And then on top of that, elevating the product quality itself. So they, their first big push was really in televisions. And they, in the mid-2000s, they released this line of Bordeaux televisions that were high-end premium and very expensive at the time, but basically squashed Sony. I mean, Sony was already in decline, and this was the last gasp of the, the Japanese economic miracle. Once Sony had lost out to Samsung, and also to Apple, by the way, it was clear that this this next big battle was not going to be Samsung versus Sony, but it was going to be Samsung versus Apple. This is when we see the rise of the next heir, the third generation heir. His name is Jay Lee, or in Korean, Lee Jae-yong. He is somebody who hasn't really proven himself. I mean, nobody really knows what he's capable of because he tends to be, unlike his father, somebody who, who stays hidden and has a lot of minders and guides around him, a lot of teachers who are showing him the ropes of business. But he doesn't really have a success story under his belt. And so, you know, a lot of Koreans and Korean analysts especially have told me that they're not really sure if they would put Jay Lee as a company heir. They're not sure if they can have faith in him. He does make some decisions, but ultimately during the Apple versus Samsung wars, he's somebody who is more in the background. So he's the the person who would go to Cupertino in California and meet uh, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook at the headquarters. He's sort of a diplomat and he goes and he signs the deals, but the actual legwork is is taken care of by the people below him. And so during this period, Samsung is making massive inroads against Apple. Um, they, they do a similar thing that they did to Sony, which was a combination of elevating the hardware quality of the product through these incremental innovations that Koreans call Kaesong. In Japan, this is called Kaizen, which is more familiar to people. And then um, elevating the marketing quality too. So they launched a really successful marketing campaign called The Next Big Thing Is Here, in which they actually, going against marketing wisdom, they took Apple head on and they made fun of Apple fans and portrayed Apple fans as a bit petty and worshippers of Steve Jobs. And, you know, they, they portrayed Samsung as the smart person's alternative that it's a phone that's more customizable. It uses Android. So there's a lot more you can do with it. The camera is better. It's the first, the first phone to be waterproof, for example, or water resistant. And, you know, I think that that is the moment when Samsung really started to overtake Apple in revenues as the most profitable technology company in the world. Although it never, I I don't think it really beat Apple in the actual profit margins from each phone. It was more of a a volume company. So Jay Lee, you know, he's in the background while this is all happening. I, I don't think he had much to do with that success. But his first big public appearance is actually during the impeachment of the South Korean president. And this was such an interesting story. I was there in Korea following it closely. Jay Lee actually was involved in a major, major corruption scheme. And it's not even alleged at this point. It's simply, I think it's, there's enough evidence to say that this has happened. He bought horses, or his Samsung executives, rather, I should say, bought horses, which they gave to the South Korean president's political ally, a woman named Choi Soon Seal, in exchange for the president's support for a major Samsung merger that would help him consolidate his control as the next chairman of Samsung after his father had a heart attack, but then would also just lead to losses for the Korean National Pension Service and the shareholders of Samsung affiliates. It was really 
a just a, a terrible merger that you know basically everyone except for the Samsung family would benefit from this. And this led to the impeachment of the president. It led to the arrest of Jay Lee. Um, it led to uh, many lawsuits, including there's one major arbitration now against the South Korean government by a New York hedge fund over the losses that they incurred through this fraudulent merger, or they allege it to be fraudulent. And Jay Lee was, he spent one year in jail. Uh, he's on his retrial right now, so he's actually going to get his final verdict soon. Um, he was let off early, but the, the appeals court upheld part of his bribery conviction. So he, it's really just one of these stories in Korea that you see over and over again, where there's some kind of backdoor deal going on. And you know, a politician goes to jail, and then a table leader goes to jail. It really is incredible to see it keep replaying. So this is Jay Lee. I, I don't want to paint him in a terrible light, but really all we've seen of him in public is his arrest and his jailing and his trials. I mean, we, act, we actually haven't seen him succeed at, in Samsung yet. So the big question mark now, and I've been talking for a while, I'll give the floor to you in a second, but um, the big question mark is can Jay Lee, the vice chairman and the heir to the Samsung empire, can he run Samsung like his father? Can he reinvigorate it and can he turn it into something that will that will continue to be successful for the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the, the long view? People look to his father, even the judge when he was in court kind of uh, scolded him and said, Look, when you were this, when your father was your age now, he instigated a sweeping reform at Samsung and turned it into one of the biggest and most profitable companies in the world. And what have you done? You haven't really done anything, have you? You've gone to jail. You know, you've been involved in a bribery scandal with the South Korean president. So, you know, he, he scolded him and he said, it's about time. Maybe it's time for you to step up and to do some good work. So this is the big question mark now, and I've been watching carefully. Will he step up and will he become a great leader like his father, or will he fade more into the, you know, into the background and not really be um, a leader like his father was? What are your thoughts on that? Do you think he's going to be able to step up and uh, really take charge of Samsung's future? So he faces one big problem, and it's that Samsung now is a lot bigger than it was when his father was the leader. There was a lot more room to grow back then, but right now the future is not as clear because, uh, you know, once you're already number one, then the question mark is, well, where do you go next? We're already number one. So what do we invest in? You know, what kind of products do we make? So his father invested in lots of component lines such as LCD screens that were enormously successful because they were used in all these smartphones and TVs over the years. The other one was NAND flash memories. So you know, these were the hard drive, hard disks or the, um, the, memory, the memory components that were used in iPods and iPhones. So, so basically his father was investing in technologies that he knew you know, in 10, 20 years, everybody would need with the rise of, you know, I, I don't think he predicted the iPhone itself, but everyone knew that you know, back then, like they knew that, that um, phones were going to become smarter one day, that they would become like little computers, that, you know, that TVs would become smarter, that you could access all kinds of content on them, that it wouldn't just be a dumb box you put in the corner and there are only a set number of channels. I mean, I think a lot of technologists saw these movements coming and his father was really smart to make those investments when he did because he had it with just the right timing, just when people needed it, he had the products ready, which was why Samsung is so successful. And now the question mark is, okay, so where does Jay Lee go with Samsung? And he's been making some investments in um, so artificial intelligence-focused semiconductors, which is smart. I think that's a smart investment. I think that AI is going to be a major force in the coming decade. 
Um, also in these quantum LED displays, you know, I think that uh, display technology is about to make another leap, but perhaps not as big of a leap as, as say, with the semiconductors, with the need for AI semiconductors. And I think that he also realizes that a lot of major AI firms around the world, they actually already have their own chip designs. So if you're making an AI chip, it has its own, it's different from other chips. It has different needs and a different design. And they need a place, a foundry, where they can manufacture these things. And Samsung is the company that can get it done reliably. I mean, they can get it done fast and reliably. So I think that he's smart to, um, you know, switch to, to use this foundry model, to switch to that and to see if, you know, for example, Amazon or uh, Alibaba in China, if they need, you know, some kind of AI chip. And they will. So um, I, I think, you know, like, I, I think that in his early leadership, we're, we're seeing some smart moves, but it's still really early to say whether these are going to be his successes, because he also has a trickier world right now. Back when his father was doing all this, I mean, this was in the early 90s when globalization was really just starting to take force around the world. And there was a lot more opportunity. There were trade deals being signed and free trade agreements. And, you know, Korea could jump on a lot of these agreements and it, it helped their exports enormously. But the world today is closing. You know, we live in a world that is moving away from the globalized model with COVID and with these trade wars going on and Donald Trump and you know, Xi Jinping and Erdogan in Turkey and Putin in Russia. We live in an era where countries don't really want to be connected with each other anymore. And so uh, if you're Samsung or if you're Jay Lee, you have kind of a hard choice to make because, you know, right now you can either go with, say, um, you could say like the European and American sphere of influence and technology that's starting to emerge or the mainland Chinese sphere of influence that's starting to emerge. Korea is stuck between these two. Samsung is a major supplier. And now Samsung is also, you know, they're promising that they're going to, that they're going to uh, provide a stable supply of chips for Chinese companies too. After these sanctions went through recently with these, um, these, so these U S sanctions against uh, chipset suppliers that are supplying uh, Chinese chipset makers. The the big question now is like, okay, so can Samsung keep doing that? Are they actually going to have to make a choice eventually and either be on the mainland Chinese side or be on the Silicon Valley side? And who are they going to sell to? I think right now they can get away with it. I don't think that the sanctions are tough enough that you know they will actually run into trouble with that. But eventually there could be a situation where where you know one of the one one or the other government will say either you know, you work with Beijing or you work with Silicon Valley and it's going to be one or the other and you have a choice. And that's going to be the big choice because both sides have their own 5G systems that, that's going to need to be powered by all kinds of Samsung technology. Um, they're going to have um, AI capabilities, uh, all kinds of, you know, emerging maybe biotech technologies that where it's just not clear who exactly is going to be more influential in the end in these areas. And that concludes part one of our interview with Jeffrey. In part two, we talk about Jeffrey's thoughts on Samsung versus Apple, the company's future, and whether or not we'll see a female successor, which is bonus content not included in his book. We also talk about whether Samsung's success can be replicated and what areas they'll most likely see growth in. So stay tuned for the next episode, and don't forget to check out our other content in the meantime. See you soon.